Let's now turn to the reading of God's Word. Our scripture text this morning, uh, our first reading will come from Genesis chapter 23. Genesis chapter 23, we'll read that chapter. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in in Kirjath Arbim, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place, that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron the son of Zohar for me that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price, as property for a burial place among you. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My lord, listen to me. The land is worth four hundred shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, four hundred shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of his city." And after this, Abraham buried, his, buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as a property for a burial place. So far from Genesis, let's also turn to the New Testament, to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter 2, verses 11 through 17. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from the fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme 
or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the King. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if, because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he, when he was reviled did not revile in return, when he suffered he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned, to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So far, the reading of God's word. I realize I went a little bit over there, but a little context can't do us no harm. Uh, the verses that we want to uh, focus on this morning are the verses 11 through 17 of First Peter uh, chapter 2. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, The big question that we want to think about that is set before us in this text, verses 11 through 17, is how do we as Christians relate to the culture around us? How do we relate to the world around us? That's what this text is all about. Uh, Many of you will have heard the statement that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. That's a biblical phrase. It comes from the Lord Jesus' prayer in John 17. And it captures a truth about us as Christians that though we do live in this world as Canadians, in a Canadian culture, busy with many of the same activities as our neighbors, we are fundamentally still not of this world. We do not belong to this world. Our values are our priorities, our activities are determined by the kingdom of Christ, not by the culture of this world. So we're in the world, but not of the world. Well, in our text in First uh, Peter chapter 2, uh, the Apostle Peter unpacks this idea in more detail to help us see what it means and what it looks like to be in the world, but not of the world and what that looks like in our own context. And we should not forget to whom Peter is writing. He's writing to suffering, scattered, and persecuted believers in the Roman Empire. Uh, Christians who were facing increasing hostility from two different sides, from the Jews on the one side who regarded them as an unbiblical sect having departed from Judaism, And the Romans, who not only hated Jews and saw them as Jews, but also detested them as superstitious people. 
So they were hated on both sides. Many of them had already lost their homes. Uh, many had lost their jobs. Many had been expelled from their uh, extended families. Uh, many of them had already experienced firsthand violence against their families. Many of them had spent time in prison. In fact, it's interesting to think about it, but perhaps some of the very same people that Peter is writing to may well have been scattered by none other than the Apostle Paul before he was a Christian. Before he was a Christian, he was an ardent persecutor of the church, uh, going, uh, in fact, on the day that he was converted, on his way to Damascus to persecute the Christians there, and he had thrown many in prison. And so these Christians knew what it was like to be hated by the world. Uh, And the hostility was only going to increase. Christianity at this time was not yet illegal. It wasn't illegal to be a Christian, but it was viewed with great suspicion. Uh, And in a few short years, it would become illegal. The first of several official sanctioned waves of persecution against the church was just about to begin. And so with that context in mind, we want to wrestle with that question. What does it mean to be in the world, but not of the world? Well, to answer that question, we want to think about three simple points. Number one, we want to think about our identity. Who are we as Christians? Peter says we are sojourners and exiles. We want to think about that. Number two, we want to look at our context Uh, Christians will always be, to some degree, rejected, despised, and hated by the world. And number three, we want to think about our calling. If those two things are true, this is who we are, this is the world in which we live. Number three, what is our calling? How are we to live in such a world? And so the first thing that we want to nail down is our identity. Uh, This is what Peter explains in the earlier verses of this chapter, and we want to make sure that we understand these things well. Uh, Otherwise, this question of how to relate to the world uh, will not even make sense. Uh, The big idea in the earlier parts of this letter and this chapter is that we as Christians are together with Christ, both rejected by the world and received and accepted by God. And so in the earlier chapter or verses, Peter uh, works with this idea in, in the Old Testament of a stone that is rejected by the builders, but chosen and precious in the sight of God. He says that's Christ. That's the stone that, that God was pleased to use to send his son into this world who, to be rejected by the world, but to be chosen and precious by God. And the point that Peter makes with that is, that's who you are too, if you are united with Christ. That means don't be surprised that you're persecuted, or rejected, or estranged from this world. So was Christ. But then recognize when you are, that with Christ you are also chosen and precious by God. Well, if that's true, uh, and and if it's true, as Peter says, that that makes us a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, then what that inevitably results in is you will feel and you will be, to some extent, sojourners and strangers and exiles 
while you live in this world. If you belong to Christ and you've been made heirs of eternal life, if you've been redeemed, as he says in the last chapter, redeemed from the futile ways uh, inherited from your forefathers, well, don't be surprised that the world that hasn't been redeemed from those futile ways, that's still living in those futile ways, regards you as somewhat odd. Kind of makes sense. You shouldn't be surprised. We become strangers to this world. Many of us, uh, I imagine, know exactly what that feels like. Uh, The friend groups that you used to hang out with, you you no longer find a place among them. Uh, Those who uh, were a good time before you knew Christ now no longer interest you. They feel foreign to you, and you are a total stranger to them. The jokes that they find funny, that you used to laugh at, are just not funny anymore. Uh, The activities that they get a kick out of, you no longer desire. Uh, And the things that you desire are totally incomprehensible to them. You now know yourself as an heir of the grace of God, redeemed by the blood of Christ, looking ahead to an eternity with God. And to you, that is the sweetest treasure. And to them, that is absolute bunk. You're a stranger. You're a weirdo in the eyes of this world. And so you now desire maturity. You desire wisdom. Uh, You feel compassion for people that you used to just laugh at. Uh, you desire opportunities to, sh- to, to serve and to show the love of Christ. Uh, and so suddenly you become a stranger and an exile in this world. And ultimately the result of that is that we will find ourselves rejected by the culture around us. Uh, regarded with suspicion and even ostracism and perhaps even regarded as dangerous or evil. Uh, Peter, uh, you'll notice when he talks about when they speak against you as evildoers. It's not if they speak against you. It's when they speak against you as evildoers. Uh, Now again, in Peter's day, uh, even though this was before Christianity was officially outlawed, uh, Christians were nonetheless regarded as a dangerous and evil people. This is often how it goes. A group is regarded as dangerous, and that ultimately serves as a pretext for the official persecution when it comes. And this was the case in Rome. We actually still have copies of some of the writings of the Romans about the Christians in that day. The Roman historian Tacitus, he wrote around the year 100 AD, so a few years after Peter, Uh, He described Christians as a cult that was loathed for their vices. Uh, When the city of Rome caught fire in A.D. 64, uh, which may well have been the very same year that Peter was writing, the Roman emperor Nero uh, blamed the Christians for starting that, and and he used that as as, as a pretext for initiating the first wave of persecution. Uh, And even though there was no evidence that the Christians started that fire, uh, the historian Tacitus describes how the, the accusation was readily accepted because he says Christians were hated for their abominations and adhered to dangerous superstitions. 
Another historian, Suetonius, uh, writes about the same event, and he personally expresses approval for the persecution of the Christians. Uh, and he even admits in his writings that there was no evidence that the Christians actually started uh, this fire. But he says they were killed not so much on the count of arson as for hatred of the human race. He describes them as a cult that adhered to a new and an ill-intended superstition. That was the view of Christians in that day. Uh, They were hated and accused of all sorts of things. They were accused of being cannibals. Uh, This was a a misconstrual of the Lord's Supper because they're the Lord's, Jesus' words are, this is my body, this is my blood, take, eat, drink. Uh, And though the Romans knew full well that's not what they were actually doing, uh, the Christians were maligned for this. Uh, And on the whole, they were just regarded as an evil people, a people that didn't deserve to live in a good, civilized, modern Roman society. They were a threat to civilization. Well, something similar happens in the West today doesn't it? Christians in the West, who, those Christians who, who hold to the Word of God as the truth of God, uh, who, who are committed to the truth of the gospel, are regarded as a dangerous, perhaps even evil, people. If you go out into this world and you teach a, a biblical view of marriage or a biblical view of justice, you will be regarded as not only uh, backwards and bigoted, but by many as dangerous. A few years ago, the Huffington Post ran an article uh, by a neuroscientist who argued that religious fundamentalism could well be treated as a mental disorder. Uh, And that neuroscientist was advocating that we do so. Uh, Bible-believing Christians are, for for much of our culture, a dangerous, evil people. Homeschooling or Christian schooling uh, is likewise regarded uh, in our culture as child abuse uh, because we are accused of brainwashing our children. And we hear it said from time to time. I certainly have. uh, Get out of our city. Get out of our country. I went to university in western Washington, uh, and I would sometimes see the bumper sticker on uh, people's cars, too many, uh, too many Christians, not enough lions. Well, that sentiment lives in our culture. That's not as severe as it was in, in Peter's day. Uh, that is true, but we are strangers. We are foreign, and we are to many uh, a dangerous and evil people. And it can certainly get worse. You think of places like India, where Christians are regarded as the lowest caste, the untouchables, those with whom you do not affiliate. Uh, in China right now, Christians who do not uh, promote and even preach the, communi- the ideology of the communist government are seen as troublemakers and agitators. Even now, pastors and elders uh, are being imprisoned for uh, seeking to be faithful to the Word of God. And just uh, last month, uh, one of the elders was sentenced uh, in, in a small Reformed Presbyterian church, was sentenced to four years in prison, a young man with, with, with a wife and children. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, the pastor of that same church uh, was sentenced to nine years in prison. It can get worse. Uh, and this can happen even in a nominally Christian nation. You think of the Reformers. 
Uh, the Reformers in the Reformation of the 1500s, a Christian nation in name, uh, and yet they were driven from their land, they were dispossessed of their properties, they were hanged, they were burned at their stake, uh, they had, many of them, their tongues cut in two. Uh, in some cases, even just like in the ancient Israelite days, uh, women were ripped, pregnant women were ripped open uh, to destroy the offspring of, of those Reformed people. This can happen, and it can get worse. Here's the point, then. Uh, We are sojourners and exiles in this world. We need to get used to that identity. Uh, We stand out as odd. Now, as I say that, uh, we recognize uh, there's, there's, there's a tension here because we are also citizens of our country. Uh, and, and even more, this earth ultimately is our home. We will inherit the earth as Jesus promised. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. So this is our home. This is our country. But at present, in the day in which we now live, we are foreigners and exiles. Uh, the scripture speaks of it this way, your citizenship is in heaven. Uh, and the image that Paul wants us to have when he, when he speaks that way, uh, not that uh, you know, that's your home and that's where you're ultimately going to go, but Paul speaking as a Roman here, one who grew up in a Roman colony uh, and, and would be told from childhood, your citizenship is in Rome. And the point was, Rome is planting colonies here in the hinterlands and you are to live as citizens of that empire because one day that empire will fill this earth. That means you are a stranger while you are here. So our lifestyle, our culture, our our priorities uh, will be different. We live kingdom down, not culture up. Uh, And that means then we will stand out as odd. And so the question then is, how are we to respond to that? How do you respond to being treated as dangerous and evil? Well, Peter's answer in in verses 11 and 12 is not uh, hit them back, insult them right back. If they speak evil of you, make sure to speak twice as evil about them. No, that's not Peter's advice. Uh, Rather, his instruction is strive with all your might to do good in this world. I heard a talk recently uh, by uh, one of the representatives of ARPA on the uh, likelihood of persecution coming to our nation. Uh, And the big question that was posed in that talk was, would we be ready? Would we be ready for persecution? And the speaker's conclusion uh, was, no, on the most part, we probably wouldn't. Uh, And his focus was, was primarily on the question of, would we endure? Would we stay Christian? if we were persecuted. Now, I, I disagree a little bit with his conclusion. I think we're a stubborn people, so we have that going for us at least. Uh, but what I, wonder, what I wondered as I thought about it, we might be able to persist in our identity as Christians in name. Would we respond in grace? As Peter calls us to do, would we do good? Because we're, we're really well trained in the, uh, the, the, the discipline of outrage, Uh, Did you hear the latest thing the government did now? We're really good at that. Uh, But that discipline will not serve us well 
Should we actually reach the point where we are being thrown into jail or dispossessed of our properties? Uh, we, we need to do more than know how to get upset. Uh, we need to know how to respond with the grace and mercy and compassion of Christ. And that's what Peter's calling these Christians to do. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see not your outrage, not your anger, not your impeccable logic which ought to persuade them, uh, but that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Uh, the word for good, that's translated good there in the Greek, uh, is the word kalos, uh, which can also be translated as beautiful or attractive or winsome. It's the same word James uses in James 3 verse 13 when he tries to describe wisdom. Uh, and he asks, who is the wise and understanding among you by his good conduct? Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Our calling as Christians, as citizens of that kingdom, is to keep our conduct honorable, honorable and good, beautiful, to live upright, beautiful lives with the hope that though they may not be changed in their hatred for Christians, they may at least see our good deeds and when they stand before God on the final day, at least then they will have to admit, yeah, we knew, we knew what we were saying about them was slander. At least, let's not give them free ammunition to use against us. And something to think about, what what kinds of accusations in our day are made of Christians today, and do the accusations stick? And one of the ones that I hear uh, more often is, oh, they're a self-righteous, moralistic, holier-than-thou people. Well then, brothers and sisters, if that's the accusation being made, let's show them by doing good with love and compassion that that's not true. We're not holier than thou, uh, than anybody. Or uh, what about the accusation, oh, they're intolerant. No, there's certain truth to that. There is. Uh, there There are values that we promote, that we honor, and there are things that we regard as holy and sacred. Uh, So there's some truth to that. But, brothers and sisters, let your your neighbors, your colleagues, your uh, co-workers uh, see that you are a man of, or a woman of tenderheartedness and compassion. Uh, Not the intolerance that they paint uh, you to be, uh, but rather a person of mercy. Again, uh, they're a judgmental people. I sometimes hear that said. Again, depends what you mean. Do we make judgments? Do we make values? Of course we do. So, so, so do they. So do all people. Uh, but we are not a judgmental people. Judgmentalism uh, is a disposition to condemn. A disposition to accuse. I hope that accusation doesn't stick. Uh, that is not who we are to be. Uh, we are to be to the slowest to condemn. As James says, let every person be quick to listen, slow to anger, uh, and slow to speak. And, and so, being that will not prevent people from speaking evil against you. It's not, that's not what Peter's saying. If you just do this, they'll all speak nicely about you. Uh, no, uh, for most of God's people and for most of history, 
that hasn't been the case. But Peter says, nonetheless, do good so that at least on the day of visitation, when we all have to stand before God's throne, at least then they will glorify God for the good deeds that they saw and they were not willing to acknowledge. Uh, So your good conduct, your submission, your love for your neighbor, uh, though it may not stop people from speaking evil, uh, it will do what you are called to do, which is to give glory to God during the days that you live here on earth. And, and there's more. What, what's often happened is, in history is that though the first generation is slandered and persecuted, uh, and yet it, they persisted in doing good, what often happens is in, in the second generation, uh, those, uh, the children of those who had persecuted them uh, have recognized the accusations are not true, uh, and that ultimately leads to the persecution uh, letting up. And that's something we should hope for and pray for, uh, that, that our good deeds, though our primary purpose is to give glory to God by them, but that those good deeds might also serve to show the culture uh, we are not those people, uh, that they might not then regard us with such hatred. Now, don't get the wrong message here. Uh, Peter is not saying uh, just surrender the points that get people upset. That's not what he's saying. If, if they're upset about your view of sexuality or marriage, then, then just surrender that to them. That's not what he's saying. Uh, no, he's saying do good. Live honorably. Uh, and what that means is, is have the wisdom and the willingness to both live and die by those truths while showing the world uh, that, that freedom and joy can only be found in Christ. Let the world see that in you. It's a call then to living and dying by the gospel. Now this also means, taking a look again at verse 11, uh, it also means that each of us as sojourners and exiles need to be fully engaged in making our first fight, our first war with the world that we find right here in our own hearts. Uh, he says, uh, wage war against the desires of the, or, or, or uh, fight the desires of the flesh that wage war against your souls. And your warfare against the world, uh, it begins right here at home. It begins in your own heart. Uh, when we think of the desires of the flesh, uh, we shouldn't simply think of uh, purely bodily desires. That's not what Scripture uh, is only referring to. Uh, you think of like drunkenness or lust, though, though Peter does deal with those issues. Uh, but the desires of the flesh are much, much wider. They include all of the uh, emotions and all of even the actions of an unbelieving world. Uh, in some of Paul's lists of the works of the flesh, uh, you find idolatry, sorcery, uh, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, uh, envy, and other things. Uh, when, our, when our nature uh, fell, when our sinful nature, or our human nature fell with Adam, the whole nature was corrupted, both body and also mind and spirit. And all of those are, are among these desires of the flesh that wage war against our soul. So Peter urges us then, abstain from these passions and impulses, fight them, 
because they are fighting you. It's what the uh, Puritans, I think John Owen uh, used to say, uh, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's one or the other. Having said that, uh, before we close, I do want to deal briefly with uh, verses 13 to 17. Uh, One could easily devote an entire sermon to that, but I chose not to because it's a fairly simple point that Peter is making. One of the accusations that was lodged against Christians in Peter's day uh, was that Christians are insubordinate. They're insubordinate. This has often been an accusation made against Christians in history. The same is being said today of the Christians in China, is they're insubordinate. They're trying to overthrow the government. Uh, It was uh, the accusation made against the Reformers as well. Uh, And the Reformers had to take great pains to show that, no, we're not being insubordinate. We want to honor our government. We want to submit Uh, And and so that's also what Peter says here. Uh, What does it look like to to make your conduct good and honorable and beautiful in the sight of the Gentiles that they might see your good deeds and give glory to God? Uh, He begins with submission to the governing authorities. Uh, So he says in verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the emperor as supreme or governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, brothers and sisters, I know you know this, uh, but we do need to hear it. Uh, The world needs also to know that we preach it and that we believe it. Uh, That we as Christians are called to be obedient and compliant citizens in every respect except in those cases when the government calls us to do what Christ forbids. And the reality is those are rare cases. They are. They're rare cases. Uh, Living honorable and upright lives then begins with demonstrating to the authorities that we see them as being placed by God over us. That we will honor them, obey them, and submit to them, and do good for them, and pray for them. Now, most of us uh, still feel like we're a long ways from persecution, I hope, uh, and I pray that is the the case, Uh, and yet it, it, it could come. And it's not something that we want. You sometimes hear that people say, oh, persecution would be good for the church. That's not something you want. Uh, That's something that uh, we we pray God would prevent. Uh, And one of the best ways to prevent that is to show the government that we love our governing authorities and pray for them. So we should pray that God would spare us uh, from that persecution. We should do everything in our power to cultivate good relationships with the governing authorities in our region. I know that's not a, a popular message. It was even, you can imagine, how much less popular that was in Peter's day. You better believe there were voices within the Christian community, uh, voices of resistance, voices of fighting back. Uh, And yet Peter urges these these believers to be subject, to be submissive and obedient. Uh, And and listen to even what he says. It's amazing what he says. uh, that That these authorities are sent by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. 
Now just think about that. From Peter's perspective, the Emperor Nero was lighting Christians on fire at his dinner parties to provide light to his garden parties. That's the level of persecution they were facing. And Peter, he's not writing from an ivory tower either. He, he himself would be killed for his faith in just a few years. Uh, and yet, Peter says, in general, most of the time, they are busy fighting evil. And that's the truth. It's the truth. Even in a place as dark as China or North Korea, most of the time, the police are busy fighting crime, trying to punish those who do evil and trying to praise those who do good. So, he says, show them that we are among those who strive with all our might to do good. And Peter could say that about Nero's regime. Well, surely we could say the same about our government, that we can show them that we're peace-loving people, uh, upright model citizens who contribute to this society, who go above and beyond even to serve and bless our communities. I think just for an example of our sister church in Hamilton, uh, Blessings Church in this last year uh, when there was a riot that went downtown uh, Lock Street and they were smashing windows and um, resisting, the go- they were holding signs about resisting the government, resisting uh, capitalism uh, and caused great damage in that community and in the mess and in the following days, uh, our sister church there opened up their doors for the mayor, the, the the chief of police, the chief of the firemen to come in to hold meetings with business leaders to show them we want to help build and restore this community. That government, the government in Hamilton is not a friendly government towards Christians, but I bet, I bet they're a little bit more friendly after something like that. They see these people want to do good in our city. So if we're going to be spoken evil about as Christians, let it at least be unjustly so. Let it be accusations that don't stick. Uh, And Peter says, by doing so, we'll put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And I love how he he expresses it in the last verses. I know I'm over time. Uh, But he says in the last verses, he he, he distills it down into these these such beautiful, simple instructions. He says, we're free. Uh, We're not bound. We're not slaves. He says, live as people who are free. Uh, He says, uh, as free, yet not using that liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. That's the big idea. We're free people. We're not slaves to anybody. Uh, Only free people can go above and beyond in the service of love. Uh, The reformer Martin Luther put it this way. He said, a Christian is, is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. And a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. We're free, but we're free to do the will of Christ. So Peter finishes with these words, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. That's the rule of life for Christians. It's a verse to memorize. That's a verse to live by. That's what Christian freedom looks like. That distinctive mark of every Christian is that deep and heartfelt respect for the image of God, just the image of God in every human being, uh, whether they're Hindu, uh, Muslim, Buddhist, uh, leftist, right, 
uh, homophobic or racist or bigoted or whatever. They're human beings made in the image of God, and we love and honor and respect them for that, though we might disagree with them on a thousand other things. Uh, All those who come into contact with you should see and feel that heartfelt respect. So do, do honor everyone, do good to them, overcome evil with good, and by doing so, live and show the gospel of Christ. Amen.